What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. It's the first live podcast of the new year. I hope that uh, you don't actually have to work for a living and you can join us live. And it is a pleasure to be joined by Gene. You put up the biggest numbers of all my guests. You're the number one guest on the Run Your Mouth podcast. And it is a pleasure to have you back on. First guest of the new year. Thanks for being here. I'm honored, uh, Rob, to be the first one to run my mouth on Run Your Mouth in 2022. And I do want to tell your listeners that uh, this could be the most important podcast that they listen to in 2022. I'll be explaining why shortly, but I do want to take the opportunity to, to say to your many tens of thousands of listeners who are presumably well-heeled that uh, the soul form invited Rob Bernstein, Rob Bernstein himself, to be the warm-up act in our at our February 17th debate, which is extreme going to be extremely well attended because it has Jonathan Haidt uh, debating Robbie Suave on us on the issue of social media on what government should do or not do about social media. Uh, Jonathan Haidt and Robbie Suave are both uh, big draws, and uh, so we expect a pretty large crowd now. So I invited uh, Rob Bernstein to be. Uh, the warm-up act for that large crowd in Lower Manhattan, and Rob told me to stick it up my ass. And no, no, he and not in so many words. Now, why did he? Because I'm I wish four- I was that cool, Gene. I'm a little <laughs> bit more respectful. I wish I was that good of a negotiator, and I just said, "Up yours." I'm not doing it. Okay, then I would have, upped, I would have upped uh, the pay. It was going to be a paying gig on top of everything else. And Rob could always use a little shit coin. A little that is true. Coin. Yeah, yeah. But but Rob is a uh, a principled guy. And uh, because the venue, of course, in Manhattan demands proof that you've been vaxxed, uh, Rob said, no way, I'm not doing it. And uh, I had to respect Rob's decision. Uh, And uh, so that's uh, to my great regret, Rob is not doing it. And uh, uh, that segues, however, into our recent fundraising campaign. I released a, uh, a fundraising statement, and we raised a pretty tidy sum of money, but you could use more. Uh, what we're trying to do with the extra money that we badly need is try to some degree to accommodate principled people like Rob, who say, as long as you succumb to those vac, vac mandates in Manhattan, uh, the sole form is just not the venue I attend. So one of the things I did, uh, the, the big thing I did in December is that I held a simulcast in my huge loft apartment with a 123-inch screen uh, where we showed the debate that was only two blocks away. And in my apartment, my loft apartment, which has a capacity of about 60, could easily be seated, a couple of standing. Uh, there are no vax requirements, no masks, no nothing. That's where the real party is. I'll just stand up for that crowd. I'll do the, I'll do the home crowd. I'll, I'll warm them up. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, Rob. Uh, there's no pay for that gig, though. That's all right. It's M- Manhattan Summer Porch Tour. I'm a man of the people, and uh, if people are showing up to a living room. They feel like they couldn't attend the the big show with the oh, big right. names. I'll be there with the little man. Does your wife still put that. out the delicious meatballs and cookies? Yes, indeed. No, the food. See, that's where that's where the food is. And then, uh, then what happens is what happened in December. What will happen again in February is that then the people at the Sheen Center, two blocks away, will be invited over to my loft apartment for the after party for the debate. That's that would be around eight o'clock. 
and we did it in December. And I have to say that that people like Rob, the people who refuse to get vaxxed, they seem to be my kind of people. Yeah, they're the funner people. <laughs> they're the smarter people. They understand the risks and benefits of, uh, you know, having their freedom and not being forced to take experimental vaccines. And those yeah. are the people to hang out with. Yeah. Well, you look, you, you proved right, Rob, because I haven't had such a good time in one of my receptions in quite a long time. Uh, and uh, and so uh, we're doing it again in February. But however, what actually happened in December is my wife, who had one inept assistant, uh, she was just overwhelmed by all the people who were buzzing because I was over at the Sheen Center, uh, as were my main assistants. So she had to get let people to buzz in. She was just went slightly crazy. So we've got to staff up for that event. She needs support. She needs people to usher usher people in to buzz them in. You know, we've got the neighbors to worry about. I don't want to get thrown out of the co-op for inviting all those all those retrograde people like Rob Bernstein over to my apartment. So I've got to make sure that people mind their manners. Just walk up the stairs. One flight up there's no just don't take the elevator just walk the one flight up around the second floor of the, of the loft building uh and then on top of that I Gina, i'm going to be knocking on the doors of your neighbors to let them know that there's illegal gatherings going on inside the building <laughs> right. and that you're not respecting the covid protocols yeah yeah rob is <laughs> rob is going to rat on me <laughs> and, uh, and uh so uh, indeed uh, look he'll have a right to rat on me because indeed i'm not you know, but anyway uh, but look i have a right not to respect the, pro the, the rob i'll tell you the law in my own okay. apartment happily not look Look, the totalitarian state has not yet taken over my domicile, Rob. As you know, this is only in public venues. I have the right to 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 to, uh, to invite the scum of the earth, people like Rob Bernstein, over to my apartment. <laughs> That's my privilege. That's my right of association, Rob. You know that. So you'll be so there's nothing illegal about what I'm doing. On the other hand, of course, the cop could toss me out, which of course is a, could create problems for me, which you obviously going to cooperate. Yeah. I'm so honored that me being an invite is your expression of freedom. Okay, so that's the point. I'm trying to earn my spurs with all those people who've sort of, you know, uh, ranked me out uh, for the fact that I've succumbed to the mandates. I've pled with people. I've said, look, I don't want to go back to Zoom, doing Zoom, uh, Zoom debates. Uh, it, that's just no fun. And, uh, and I, I want the crowd. I want the party. That's what I want. The theatricality of two people debating well, in front of the crowd. Yeah. To, to to stand in your defense, there's an audience of New York intellectuals that are probably very into the vaccines, yeah. and uh, I think the SOA forum is changing minds and bringing those people good information. Yeah. So you know, the only way you're going to get them in the doors is if it's a venue that they're comfortable with, and that's yeah. what they want. And so. Like, firstly, you know, we're, we're free market people. Those are people that want a specific venue with a specific standard and they're willing to pay, get a ticket for it. So, you know, there's a market for it. And the only way you're going to reach those people is by catering to it. So I support it. Well, uh, well, yeah, Ron, but, um, technically, isn't it? When, when I saw you at the Brooklyn uh, Comedy Club cellar, they they sort of, they had a sort of vax mandate there too. Didn't they have to comply? I mean, right? You, you uh, as as far as I know, it that I don't want to rat out that venue, oh, okay. but in in my experience with them, they've been very cool. And yeah. uh, you yeah. know, it's been a little bit of a it's like the old military gay thing. Don't ask, don't tell. Well, actually, that's part of it as well. By the way, the the vax mandates are sort of being not being enforced that severely, but that's a different matter. You and I don't want to talk illegality too much on a podcast because uh, this could be, you know, the, the government might come down on us. But anyway, I just want to cut to the chase and say that apart from that as well, I, I need the money to take our show on the road. 
uh, a bit more. Um, I haven't had quite the energy to do it quite as, as much as we did last year. We went to Florida twice. We went to New Hampshire. We went to South Dakota. You're going to get a tour but, bus? The Gene Epstein well, tour bus? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, again, and that's right. I, I need money for the tour bus. I need money for the staffing. We have to pay people to do a video. So uh, this was a plea for funds. That, And I said to people, look, if you're criticizing me for succumbing to the Vax mandates by having live debates in Manhattan, then put your money where your mouth is and, and contribute so that I can afford to take the show on the road and to continue to do those alternative, uh, you know, the simulcast in my apartment because uh, that that requires additional staffing. And I don't take a salary from the Soul Forum. Uh, it's a labor of love purely. And I just didn't love doing the uh, doing the Zoom today. I love having the parties. So it was a plea for funds. Put your money where your mouth is. Go into thesoulforum.org, first of all, to buy tickets for, I guess, uh, look, Rob just volunteered to do a stand-up. So I guess we'll post them. If you go to then... The, I better uh, check the date on that, but I'm down for it. I, if there, if I, I, I can't imagine. I already have a February conflict. If it's open, February I'm down. 17th, Thursday, February seventeenth, Rob. Look, look, come on, you're booked everywhere. You know, you're watching. I wish, everything. I wish I was that busy. Well, I wish, Gene, I was so cool that I was telling you to shove gigs up your ass, and that I was so busy <laughs> that even on a Thursday in February, you couldn't possibly get yeah, me. You, but you could say, look, I sh shove a non-paying gig, gig up your ass. <laughs> what you want, want me to say? You think it's not paying? Just wait till I eat all those cookies. You're gonna turn. <laughs> around and be like wow rob really uh ate his pay yeah i don't know look rob i guess you will we'll give you a few minutes because i don't know i'm trying to think about the time yeah we'll deal with it we'll deal with it anyway uh, about your comment you're gonna come in but anyway what what we have now if you go into the soulform.org the soulform.org first of all if you hit the donate button uh, then you can put your money where your mouth is and help us to do all the things that i've just mentioned uh secondly we are selling seasons tickets well, we have three debates up for sale at a discount, and you can choose to buy. You got to pay at the door. Rob could come in for free because he's gonna do his. Oh no, no, yeah, we are paying you a little bit, Rob, because we're gonna we won't charge you at the door. But oh, that's we, we will have, we will have to charge people at the door for the for the simulcast for and for the staffing, but that won't cover our cost. So that's just a contribution. But you can buy a season's ticket to the simulcast. You can buy a season ticket to the event itself at the Sheen Center, three debates coming up, or and on top of that, you can donate the soulforum.org, uh, go into that website, and now I guess we'll get down to business, Rob. Uh, well, as, as long as we're plugging, I, I do have two dates, no vax needed, up in Boston with uh, uh, Dave, 13th, 14th, and then up in Buffalo on the 21st. Oh. And now, Gene, uh, I was honored that you attended my uh, end oh, of your yeah. misinformation yeah. spectacular live. Yeah. Uh, one of the topics that I was, uh, you know, I did my homework on it, but I was uh, most concerned as I was uh, definitely exploring oh, some economic literature that I wasn't getting everything right was yeah. uh, my take on global warming. Yeah, yeah. Now, in putting that together, I, I think there's a, a two sided argument kind of against government intervention in global warming. Uh, one of them is the, the moral case for fossil fuels, which was kind of the way I approached it. Yeah. And then there's also how much evidence is there really of um, basically man's actions contributing to uh, climate change? And yeah, yeah. that kind of digs into models. And for whatever reason, I didn't I, I, I kind of had a joke in last year's end of year thing about uh, economic like uh, faulty models. So I didn't really dig into that side of the argument. Yeah. Uh, but I do. I understood Like I, I had the thought in my head of like, man, I'm trying to be comprehensive here and I know I'm overlooking a big part of it. 
Uh, and then you and I got on a call afterwards and you were giving me some really interesting information about kind of the way those models work. So I'd love to hand it back to you if uh, you could educate the listeners a little bit, um, you know, specifically on your take on, I guess, just how much man is contributing to global warming or changing climate. They even kind of change their terms around at times. Oh, yeah. No, this climate change business. I mean, they should call it global warming. They say they claim that the, that the earth is warming uh, and that man is 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 very importantly uh, contributing to it. Uh, now, uh, yeah, to give you uh, a full answer, uh, Rob, uh, which I guess won't take too long. Uh, I'm basing this on um, a book I've read called Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't and Why It Matters. That's a dense I, book. I've, 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 I listened to pieces of it. It's very dense. All right. Okay. Well, then uh, you've got uh, Professor Epstein to... Uh, Good, because it was over my head. So this is going to be great. <laughs> all right. So yeah, I'll give you the punchline. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm having Stephen Coonan come to the Soul Forum in March. Uh, and so, uh, and, and I, of course, he should give the dumbed down version. You'll, of course, come to the simulcast in March uh, to listen to him. Uh, and I'm going to coach Stephen Coonan to, to dumb it down for people like Rob Bernstein. But anyway, I'm going to give I'm going to give you the dumbed down version uh, now. If you want to run the dumb test against me beforehand to see what I can comprehend, I'll <laughs> I'll happily participate. Okay, <laughs> all right. Let me get let me set the stage this way, uh, Rob, because, you know, you allow me to be expansive on your podcast. Stephen Coonan was an appointee under uh, President Obama. He says he's a he's a he's a capital D Democrat. Um, and uh, so he's an Obama supporter, a capital D Democrat. And why do I mention that? Only because um, he clearly, clearly is, must be regarded by uh, the uh, the capital D Democrats and by the Obamates as a bit of a renegade, but he's kept his integrity. And, uh, and so so he's in no way, you know, that hopefully a lot of uh, capital D Democrats are listening to this uh, podcast. And I've I've tweeted a number of his insights for the sake of the capital D Democrat. This is a guy you can trust, uh, you progressives out there, because his political sympathies lie with you. But because he's a scientist, he's he's uh, honor bound to speak the truth about what's really going on. Okay, now what's really going on is a little bit different from the way you formulated it, Rob, but, but still it comes out the same way. Uh, what's really going on is that 98 to 99% of the reason why the earth is warming is due to natural causes. And uh, he explains that something called albedo, come, some all the things that we can sort of look at scientifically. And I, I won't bore the uh, listeners with that. I'm, I'm, I probably can't do a very good rendition of it. So his punchline, because he's a rock rib scientist who's who's done model building, who who know who is basically a very uh, well-educated climate scientist, it's due to natural causes. But let me tell you why we know superficially that it's due to natural causes. That's because the warming started uh, before the 20th century even began. Uh, the, uh, the, the earth is warmed by about 1.4, 1 1 1.4 to 1.8 Fahrenheit. I'm looking at the number, but it's in that range. And it started to warm uh, around 1880, 1890. And uh, on top of that, uh, the, uh, one of the strongest warming trends occurred from 1910 to 1940. Now, you probably immediately know why I'm emphasizing that fact, because it's a strong clue uh, that he must be right about natural causes, because nobody talks about human influences until about mid-20th century. 
That's that's when human influence is having to do with methane and carbon dioxide heated up. And here we have a warming trend from 1910 to 1940 uh, that was about as strong as the, as the recent warming trends. So that should indicate to you that natural forces must be in the saddle just on that basis alone. Again, I repeat, because the, the Earth started to warm, uh, according to the numbers we have, uh, prior to the 20th century. And, and 1910 to 1940 was about as strong as what we've recently seen. And on top of that, on top of that, the 25-year period beginning around 1990, uh, there was a period in which the warming period slowed, 16 years in which it slowed. And that was a time when carbon dioxide was building up. In other words, we've had a slowing uh, over a recent period and carbon dioxide and man-made influences were, were, were building up. So I know, so that's another clue that natural forces must be in the saddle, that we are affecting it at around a 1.1 to 2% margin, but that 98% that is the principal reason why the earth is warming. Do, I don't know, do, you, do you have a question of that before I proceed? No, no I, even, uh, yes, no. I, I guess I do have a question. It sounds to no. me yeah. that we're saying that we can't really correlate man-made carbon yeah. with uh, with cooling or heating because cool. we've seen both of those incidents outside. Uh, like we've seen when we're using a lot of carbon that the world was actually not getting hotter. And yeah. we've also yeah. seen that it's gotten hotter when before. Exactly. before. Yeah. So how do you correlate exactly that 2% of what's going on even has anything to do with human carbon? Oh, it just sounds well, to me like yeah. it's kind of removed from what we're doing altogether. Okay. Well, all right. But, uh, but with then, then the answer to your question is with that said, Kunin, who is, who is a, a strictly honest scientist says that we know based upon science we, and we know a priori that carbon dioxide and methane, which is human influences, do have a warming effect. They do. They do prevent. They do have some effect in locking, uh, locking heat into the earth. So, they, so therefore, uh, he actually has a nice homely analogy. He says that suppose you eat an extra cucumber every day, that you have a certain diet, and then uh, you eat an extra cucumber every day. And then the second year you eat an extra two cucumbers and maybe an extra two and a half cucumbers. We know that the, that the extra cucumbers were you're eating, uh, which have very few calories, but if you're eating them every day, then they are clearly calorically uh, contributing to the potential for your weight gain. But but then we also know that uh, that 98% of- If you're eating Twinkies you're in the afternoon, that cucumber is not making much of a difference. Precisely. <laughs> right. So it, like it's technical. It's like, yes, it, it makes a difference. You're eating yeah. one too many cucumbers, yeah. but against yeah. the Twinkies that you're eating, it's kind of irrelevant. So it's yeah. technical. So it's the same thing here. It's like the carbon that we're emitting. Yes, technically it, yeah. it, it, it does something, but compared to what the earth does, it's kind of irrelevant. Yeah. If you can yeah. fix the earth first, then you can start worrying about our carbon. And even as it is, it sounds like it's cyclical. So it's probably not all, like it's either not much to be concerned about or or it's not so much that we need to stop our carbon, but we need to be inventing technology so that we can kind of offset what the earth is going to naturally do. Okay, just for just a moment, Robbie. Okay, you look, I, I like the way you like to repeat that. This is the Rob Bernstein way that I really like. You try to read back to me what, what, what uh, 
what I've said, and then I can correct it a little bit. I can say, you again, as usual, Rob, you're about 90% right and about 10% full of shit in what you just said. So I'm just I like global warming. I'm, I'm, I'm basically, I correlate perfectly with the, with the percentage that carbon's actually making a difference. With respect to that, the Twinkie versus the, uh, versus the cucumber thing, I also want to say that because I, I'm a big aficionado about weight, weight gain and weight loss is that the, it's not just the Twinkies, but obviously, for example, by analogy, uh, how much you exercise, how much, how much, uh, how many carbs you eat, because carbs affect the way the calories are processed. So there's so much else, uh, as uh, as he likes to point out, that determines your weight gain, your weight loss. So we we now have to create a model, however, for the cucumber effect. This gets to your question about models, Rob. Don't you remember you asked a question about the models? Yes. So so he, so the point is this sets the stage for the fact that if if man's influence, the cucumber effect, is really like having a one to two percent effect at the margin, then you have the daunting uh, challenge of constructing a model that can figure out all of the natural influences and then tease out the man-made influences and see how they affect global warming. And so, so that that in itself should tell you that it's almost an impossible task because there's so many complex factors affecting the climate. We don't understand them all completely in terms of empiricism. And the punchline is, as he puts it, because he knows model building through and through, the punchline is that the models are gibberish. The mo- they, they use a blend of about like 40 models. The, the, the models differ uh, by something like five degrees Fahrenheit in terms of the results. The, the, the models differ by more more than the amount of global warming over the last century. That in itself should tell you that they're going in all possible, all crazy different directions. So there's a kind of a fraud at the root of this, uh, which is that we, we, we're constantly hearing about the models. The UN is constantly publishing the results of the models, but really all it does is sort of average the results of the models. And what it happens on top of everything else is that the model builders actually tweak their models. If they don't like the results, they, they tweak them, they change them. So, that, so there's just no science involved at all in this model building. But again, if you back up about it, you can realize that, that, uh, that, that if I just took you, Rob, and I tried to build a model about how much the cucumber effect is, is influencing your, uh, your weight gain or loss, then we'd probably recognize that, we, that there's so many imponderables, like, for example, as I said, how much your, 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 carb, your, your carbohydrate intake, the exercise, all of the other factors, which we don't fully understand. We probably could not figure the, out the influence of the cucumber effect, even in Rob Bernstein, uh, and even though we know something about weight gain. And that's why he says the models are gibberish. Now, but there's more to the story than that, but you have something else to say? Yeah, so I, I do have a question on that, and this this question, there, there's an assumption, there's a dumb assumption in this question, but I'm going to ask yeah. it anyways. Okay, sure, sure, Rob. I'm glad you're so, integrating yourself before. I- <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So they like to preach to us that you know all of science is in agreement about this man-made climate change, and now even that, right? Is it that they're all in agreement of man-made climate change or climate change? They do kind of like mix those two things together, uh, but. When it comes, all right. I guess what I'm going to ask is, yeah. is it that scientists, for some unknown reason, seem to think that there is man-made climate change, or they they don't like the pollution, so they're willing to kind of lie and say, yes, we do have this climate change, and so they're a little bit too aggressive with their models because they're being salespeople, right? Yeah. So for whatever reason, they're kind of anti-pollution. They feel that they have a good agenda here, and they're lying. 
or is it that there's actually very few scientists who are looking at these models in real like like most scientists would look at this and go hey guys the data is not that clear here you're mashing together models that are making assumptions and we don't have clear evidence of this yeah. like do most scientists kind of acknowledge hey this isn't that like it's not proven to a t or to, do most of them kind of realize like it's for some other reason that they're just trying to sell us on this yeah well uh no, no of course that's that's a good question i know what i know what, what's the dumb part of that that there's no there's nothing core there's nothing dumb in the core <laughs> of that rob you're asking well, well why are they selling if these models are gibberish why, right why, why are they being uh, well i guess the, stu the, the stupidity is if they're going to point to the models as being the evidence and it's so clear-cut that the that yeah. the evidence doesn't stand so yeah. then why is it that they're concluding global warming like is yeah. it, it well, well, what is the reason for it rob just a moment I'm, I'm sorry, the, the way you formulated that question, again, for the sake of the listeners, I must emphasize that uh, the Earth is warming. And as Kunin says, that the, tr the trends seem to be in place for the Earth to continue to warm, mainly, overwhelmingly, because of natural causes, for reasons that we, that we just established. Um, and man, man is contributing to it. But uh, but it's so uh, such a small contribution at the margin that you we gotta simply shut, you got to shut down the earth first before you shut down the economy and gas <laughs> and pipelines. You got to shut down the earth. Can I ask one quick one okay, quick question no. though? I'm okay. sorry. Okay. I mean, get, okay, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Rob. You're impressible. Why, why do we want to? According to Kunin, yeah. uh, is the level of change something that we're at risk for? So, like, well, e even if you do establish that it's not man-made, is it something to be concerned about? The answer basically is potentially yes, potentially yes. And but that that does indeed set the stage for the next part of the analysis. But I but I just want to back and fill one point, which is to say that that because the models are gibberish, because we really don't know to what extent that cucumber to get back to our analogy with this diet is making a difference. We really don't know what will happen if Rob Bernstein starts to eat a half a cucumber. Let's say Rob Bernstein ha has a craving for cucumbers and he's gonna have a nervous breakdown if he doesn't eat a full cucumber every day and maybe an extra cucumber next year. And so the point is that since we really don't know the extent to which that cucumber is really affecting his weight uh, and making him chubbier, then uh, there's uh, we, 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 there's really no scientific basis for saying how much we're going to affect the outcome by cutting down on Rob's consumption of cucumbers. And then, of course, by analogy, we really don't know how much we could affect the outcome by cutting back on the use of fossil fuels because because it's so marginal and we don't have the models to figure it out. So that's the key point. But then, but you, you have some because I want to get you to the next question. No, on on that, I've I've also heard that yeah. um uh the I guess marginal destructive power of car man-made carbon yeah. decreases in higher volumes, it's, oh, meaning yeah. that even yeah. if it's even if it's true that two percent of climate change is the result of man-made like carbon yeah. emissions, yeah. um like it, let's say we were to double the amount of carbon that we emitted tomorrow, it wouldn't yeah. be doubly destructive, because the well, more the, yeah. Like the actual marginal destructive quality of uh, of carbon kind of reduces at higher at higher emissions. Yes. Well, no. Well, actually, that that is quite right. 
That is quite correct. However, this is something I knew uh, before I read Kunin, but then, uh, but then, of course, I'm told by those who respect the models, who, who are deluded enough into respecting the models, oh, well, the models take that into account. It isn't as though the model builders don't know that. They give you that bullshit. And then in addition, uh, the other part of it, Rob, is that carbon uh, dioxide, once it's put into the atmosphere, has a very long life. It, it, it stays in the atmosphere for a very, very long time. And so, so therefore, the point about the fact that doubling doesn't have a doubling effect on global warming is offset by the fact that it builds up. But the, so all of that is fine to say and, and not irrelevant. But the key point is that Again, 98% of the story is natural source of, of, of forces. It has to do with the ability of the Earth to, to, to send heat back. When, when you found uh, his discussion a bit daunting, uh, uh, Kuhn's discussion, that is, he was trying to explain all these natural forces and how they work. And again, I hope I've established for the sake of the lay people, people that we that we have overwhelming clues that natural forces must be in the saddle as again because the buildup of carbon dioxide over a 16 year period from about uh, uh, 1998 to 2014 uh, went up by 25 percent and yet the, the cooling uh, the, the the warming rather the warming trend slowed it slowed so, so that should be a clue in and of itself that we're that at the margin we're not that important and again i should go back to one thing point about the models which kuna makes is that the models can't really can't explain why the warming trend was so rapid from a from uh, from 1910 to 1940. Why it slowed from 1940 to 1960. They can't even explain what precisely what went on yeah, even when natural forces were in the saddle. So again, the models are gibberish, and that's the key point to bear in mind. And and not your talking point so much about how the carbon dioxide has less of an effect as it doubles. Because again, it builds up, and and that's the other part of it. By the way, there was, a, I guess, another part to make, which is that uh, that uh, that even if we slow the contribute the the amount of carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere, it is building up. It does accumulate, and and it's going to take many decades before it starts to decline. But all of that, in a way, is irrelevant. We just don't know to what extent we're making a difference. And now, of course, we want to bring in. Uh, I will. I want to answer your question about why global warming may still be a concern. Because, uh, and also, uh, of course, now bring in what you said earlier, having to do with the moral case for fossil fuels, which is Alex Epstein's point. That's the title of Alex Epstein's book. And it, it, it's, a, it's a point that Kunin doesn't emphasize as much as he might, which is, of course, as you've indicated, Rob, uh, that fossil fuels are life. We have no alternative to run the world except through fossil fuels, potentially through nuclear energy, by the way, but nuclear energy is going to take uh, decades uh, to develop. Ultimately, I think uh, nuclear energy probably will be the basis of our of, of our use of energy. But fossil fuels are, are are dominant now. And the one key bit of data that I want to cite, having to do with the moral case for fossil fuels, is indoor air air pollution caused by the burning of solid fuel sources such as firewood crop waste and dung for cooking and heating. Uh, one source estimates that's responsible for 1.6 million deaths each year, and the World Health Organization puts the deaths at 4.3 million a year. The poor people of the world do not have any other way of heating their homes uh, through, uh, other than through the use of firewood, crop waste, and dung, and that is killing them 
in the millions. They and need fossil fuels to survive. And uh, that's the primary cause of, uh, I think, source of the reason why we have to make a moral case for fossil fuels. As Alex Epstein does correctly put it, the, the environmental lunatics say, hey, look, okay, so what difference does it make if the models are gibberish? We'll, we'll cut down on the use of fossil fuels. Wouldn't that be a good thing after all? That's what, that's what the environmentalists say. Well, uh, this winter season, uh, more people are going to die of the cold because, because they can't afford to heat their homes because the price of energy has soared. And that's because of the policies of the environmentalists. So they are immorally killing people by denying the poor people of the world uh, fossil fuels. And, and so uh, you're not... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah one, one, the author, I, I haven't read Epstein's book. I should check that out. Uh, I read, I, I don't remember the- He pronounces it Epstein. Watch it. I pronounce it Epstein. He pronounces it Epstein. Go ahead. Epstein. But yeah. I read- uh, I have no idea how to pronounce this last name. It's uh, and he's he's in the Wall Street Journal all the time. It's B J O R G Bjorg, I think maybe is the name. Yeah, Bjorn, Bjorn Lundberg. Yeah, that that guy's great. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but he he points out that on an annual basis, uh, significantly more people die of a cold than any other like natural disaster or heat related well, well, incident. Yeah, no, yeah. In, this, yeah, in this case, actually, I guess the. Well, I mean, Kunin makes another point, which is rather stunning. Maybe we're overwhelming people with with insights. He makes the point, uh, and uh, this is, this does surprise me, that that global warming is primarily being manifested in uh, warmer winters. Almost overwhelmingly, it's warmer oh, winters rather than hotter summers. And uh, and he he points out the dishonesty of the way the numbers have been have been presented, which confuses people on this point. So indeed, as you indicate, it's life saving. Uh, but yeah, no, come to think of it, Rob, I now have to go back to your earlier question. Uh, you would ask, why are the scientists uh, lying to us? And uh, that's a dumb, naive question, Rob, because of course the answer to that question is that they just can't survive they, uh, unless uh, unless they uh, unless they please the powers that be. The 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 amazing thing is that the uh, the, the the global warming lunatics seem to be in the saddle. It's difficult. It's difficult to survive. Kunin has come up uh, against a lot of attacks, a lot of criticism. He's a very calm and cool guy. He's he doesn't seem to mind all the character assassination he gets, all the hostility, and even the he, he's a renegade from being a Democrat. It seems to take courage to speak uh, to speak the truth about these matters. The the money uh, that the UN disperses, the money the government disperses—it's it, all—it's uh, all, uh, it, it's all uh, uh, in the service of this, of this myth that global warming is a threat, and that we have to do something about it. Now, now I, it's difficult for progressives to believe that. You'd think that well, the oil and gas industry must have some clout. Why are they succumbing? Uh, I, in a way, it's hard to know. But but the uh, and and Kunin doesn't say that he knows how to read people's minds. He just knows that the pressure is very intense for scientists to pretend to know that you, that human causes are, are very important and that we can figure them out and that we can, if we cut down on fossil fuels, we can do something about it. And, and by the way, you mentioned Bjorn Lundberg. The only way, and Bjorn Lundberg, by the way, endorsed Kunin's book. Uh, and Kunin has a very positive thing to say about Lundberg. But Lundberg basically succumbs to the myth that, that the models have a certain precision. He succumbs to the myth that we have some knowledge about how we can slow global warming by by uh, by, by cutting uh, back on the use of carbon. So that's where Bjorn Lundberg goes wrong, and where Kunin has a crucial uh, a crucial uh, uh, contribution 
to make. We simply don't know. And again, where Kunin, I think, is mistaken and where the moral case for fossil fuels applies is that is that it's not it's not a, uh, a, 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 a an open proposition. It's not a neutral proposition. The uh, cutting back on the use of fossil fuels. Uh, Bjorn Lindbergh makes this point along with uh, Alex Epstein and others. It's killing people. The, the poor people of the world need fossil fuels. Our message to the poor people of the world is fossil fuels for me, but not for thee. And, and anybody who says that, in effect, and people who fly around the world, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who once said, I want to fly around the world, uh, uh, spreading the message about global warming, well, he's going to leave an enormous carbon footprint if he flies around the world, because flying does indeed you know, spread a lot of carbon around the world uh, And when you do that. And so, again, those people are immoral. If they had any awareness, those progressives, they are killing people. There are people who are going to die this winter because of, of a lack of uh, the ability to afford the soaring price of fossil fuels. So right. that's why there's a moral imperative to recognize that if we can't figure it out, then we should develop fossil fuels, as Alex Repstein says. But, but, then, uh, so that, but then the last part of your question was, but is global warming still a question? Is it still something to worry about? You know, in other words, you'd say, well, uh, whether it's natural causes or, or human causes, if, if the earth is warming and, uh, and if it's a source of concern, maybe we should do something about it anyway, right? Uh, doing something about it by cutting back on the use of fossil fuels, that's not a good idea for the reasons that we've just said, uh, because we don't know how much we're contributing to it and we're gonna kill people uh, if we do uh, cut back on the use of fossil fuels, but maybe we have to cope with the natural causes. And and uh, and uh, and the answer, I, I, I guess, when you said is it a source of concern, uh, I shouldn't have said yes, I should have said the answer is maybe. Maybe it's a source of concern. Uh, now, Kunin's best guess is that given the trends of the past century or more, but another 1.4 degrees of global warming or sea level rise or anything of that sort is easily dealt with uh, through adaptation. Uh, if, sea, if sea levels rise uh, uh, above a certain level in Manhattan, we'll build uh, seawalls, we'll build dikes. Uh, the adaptation uh, is, uh, is, is very open to us. Uh, if, if a poor country has problems and can't afford uh, to, uh, to build dikes, then certainly, hopefully, the richer countries of the world might subsidize it through charity. And it would still be cheaper for us to subsidize oh. building some dikes for a poor country versus not burning the fuel and not growing economically. That's right. And, 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 and as Bjorn Lundberg puts it, puts a finer point on it as well, if you allow that country to grow through the use of fossil fuels, then it will probably be able to afford its own dikes. And, and again, of course, when you say cheaper, yeah, it's pennies on the dollar. You know, it's it, it, it's a trivial sums of money compared to to the amount of money, the trillions that we that we're spending uh, by killing people through cutting back on fossil fuels. Because, again, uh, you know, uh, I guess we have to belabor the fact that uh, that that those so-called renewable energies, uh, uh, the sun and the wind, the wind sometimes doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine at night. And it's clearly uh, no alternative for the poor peoples of the world. Fossil fuels are the only alternative. So therefore, uh, we, 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 we will probably deal with it through natural forces of adaptation. Uh, if if, uh, if, if uh, global warming does become a problem, uh, and then he even trots out, because he's a scientist, other forms of mitigation. 
we we know uh, that, that if we you know we we look we could have uh, meteors. There are lots of other risks to the world. Lots of other things that could end the world or could kill millions of people. Lots of other potentials for natural disasters. One of them is uh, falling meteorites. I could list a few others. Of course, the others. Another one is nuclear war, which we want to guard against. Uh, but uh, in any case, we have risks. But in the case of global warming getting to such a point where we have to uh, we have to deal with it on a global basis, we have on the shelf, and we know about ways of of, of slowing those natural influences. And uh, as he as Kunin puts it, they should be explored. Uh, they could be done, by the way, through private philanthropy because they're not that expensive. Way, ways of increasing the Earth's ability to send back heat, send heat back into the atmosphere. So, uh, so we have that on the shelf as well. Uh, and I wouldn't like to see that, but as Kunin says, adaptation and mitigation are clearly two ways we can deal with global warming. And in and certainly coming back on fossil fuels is the dumbest most disastrous and most harmful way imaginable, given the reasons that we've stated. So hopefully that sews it up. No, no, I think there's also, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I, I think there's even a two-step process where you have faulty models, and then not only do you have the faulty models, but then they jump to conclusions off the models that aren't even consistent with the models. Uh, and I, I think the, 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 the purest example of that was actually, this was... I'm sure I'm going to have this wrong. Bob Murphy yeah. emailed me uh, maybe two years ago and I read through it. I like I had it. I had a crisp at the time, but this is two years ago. But he was saying that there was a discrepancy between uh, the I think it might be the same guy. So the, the Obama appointee who won a Nobel Peace Prize for his work in global warming and then against the oh. U.N. recommendations that like essentially oh, even yeah. that guy was coming to like, I think you yeah. needed to reduce it by one or two percent a year yeah. or something. And then the. The, and then the UN jumped to like seven, which didn't even make sense. Yeah, so yeah. maybe yeah, you can not. offer a little more of the actual well, insight yeah, no, into that. No, I know what you're talking about there, Rob. I, I was going to mention that, uh, but you know, uh, as well. Uh, this uh, the guy you have in mind is William Nordhaus. William William Nordhaus one is an economist who won Nobel Prize for writing a book about uh, uh, about uh, cutting back on uh, on fossil fuels, coming back on. Carbon, the use of carbon through through taxes, and uh, and the key point that Bjorn Lomborg liked about his conclusion, and that uh, Bob Murphy liked about his conclusion, is that uh, is that based upon uh, our knowledge, we 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 should cut back on it some, but if we cut back on it more than just a, just some, then then uh, then the then the, then the costs uh, are going to exceed the benefits, and so his was supposedly a very well formulated idea that that only a certain amount uh, of carbon should be cut back on rather than a great deal of carbon. So in that sense, he was uh, he, he was a th sort of a thumb in the eye of the environmentalists who think we should cut back on, you know, all use of fossil fuels or like 80 percent of our contributions in terms of carbon, because Nordhaus was saying that if you cut back on it too much, then all the benefits of fossil fuels, many of the benefits of fossil fuels are lost. So his was a kind of a standard cost-benefit analysis based on the models. And when I spoke to Kunin, uh, I, 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 when I spoke to Kunin, Kunin looked a little embarrassed when I asked him about Nordhaus. He doesn't mention Nordhaus in his book because, because unfortunately, he's basically saying that, that even Nordhaus is pushing bullshit. 
You All understand? Right. That, in other words, in other words, again to set the stage again, uh, Bob Murphy said Nordhaus, Nordhaus, the, the very time when the uh, when the UN was publishing its results, the IPCC was publishing its findings. Nordhaus wins a Nobel Prize, and Nordhaus was basically saying, "You're correct." Nordhaus was basically saying, "No, you just want to cut back on it somewhat, based upon my cost-benefit analysis, which in turn is based on the models." And Bob Murphy was correct, as was Bjorn Lundberg, that Nordhaus is a moderate. And, and a much more intelligent moderate than uh, than the UN was because Nordhaus was pointing out that there is a downside to cutting back on fossil fuels. But then the truth of the matter is that Nordhaus's whole Nobel Prize is based on gibberish. Right. <laughs> it's based on those models and the, and the models differ by five degrees. All they, I mean, I don't know precisely what model he was using, but they, they average like a blend of 40 models. You know, again, we're going back to why they're gibberish. The fact is, again, they, they, they differ by uh, the models themselves differ by like five degrees Fahrenheit and global warming has only been 1.4 degrees. That in itself should indicate that that uh, that they go in every direction. Uh, and, uh, and and uh, and then on top of that, as I said, the models have been unable to figure out what happened in 19 from 1910 to 1940. So so that's where I I, I was <laughs> I thought it was just a little funny that that Kunin didn't want to embarrass Nordhaus. He didn't mention Nordhaus in his book. But when I when I put the question to him, he admitted to me that Nordhaus is unfortunately pushing bullshit. There you and, go. And Fair enough. What's interesting, it's interesting because Nordhaus is probably well-intentioned, but you see where, where you know, you're sort of trained in model building and you sort of want to associate yourself with that crowd. So you use the models and you see, and, you know, uh, Bjorn Lundberg likes to say, well, look, the models are a little imperfect, but they're all that we've got, you know, they're all that we've got. Well, look, if the models are bullshit, then then having bullshit is, is, is not exactly a great thing to have. But apart from that, as I say, uh, you know, you, I, I do want to repeat the point, uh, maybe to the point of belaboring the point. This is not a neutral issue, and that's where Kunin uh, goes wrong a little bit. It, it's not a neutral issue to say that we that we might as well cut back on fossil fuels anyway, because after all, isn't that a good idea from an environmental standpoint? That's the reason why there's a very heavy moral burden of proof on anybody who would say we want to cut back on fossil fuels because you're going to be killing people in the short run, presumably because you're claiming you'll save more lives in the long run. And the truth of the matter is that you have no basis for being able to make that claim that you'll save more lives in the long run because the models are gibberish and natural forces are in the saddle. All right, mitigation, so mitigation and, uh, and, uh, and adaptation are the real solutions if we face problems of global warming going down the, in, the, in the century to come. All right. So last two questions on global warming, then we're going to move on to our uh, next topic, which is uh, your, your book. This is uh, an intellectual club sandwich, Rob. We do global warming and then that's we're doing the mayonnaise, applying the mayonnaise to the sandwich. What, Rob? What do you want to say? OK, so uh, you were pointing out that the lefty mind is somewhat like they understand oh, yeah. that I. Uh, the information is manipulated by companies, but they kind of get the story wrong that they look at it and they say, hey, the gas companies and all of the companies that are invested in kind of burn, burning carbon are preventing us from the truth, which is global warming. Sure. Now, the reality is you've got the lobby of BlackRock and I would just say more socialist players that are actually the bigger the, the bigger group that are pushing this global warming story. A short guy named Fink. Yeah, he's got a good name. The guy who, had, the guy who runs BlackRock. Larry Fink, yeah. Larry and Fink. I, 
I and I saw some some crazy stat. I think that they're like firstly, I think they're like ten trillion dollars under management or something. And that ten yeah. percent of every company in the S and P something. Why? And then I remember they even did something earlier this year um, on the board of Exxon Mobil. We're not going yeah, to. Yeah, no, 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 they did. No, indeed. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. What were you going to say? No, but I was going to, is there any uh, incentive that like even the gas and oil, like, have they also kind of leveraged their profits at this point that uh, like, is there, is there even maybe a false scarcity that the global warming creates that they can actually make more money off of gas because they're not selling it at a higher volume, but they're selling it at a higher rate Uh, or. Oh, what's that? What? Yeah, no, indeed, Rob, you know, you look, all your questions are, are, uh, are pertinent. What exactly is motivating these people? Fink clearly uh, believes the bullshit. I mean, I think he probably... Oh, honestly- you think he... No, I think he's evil. I think he understands that he can uh, create uh, regulations that will make investments profitable. So I, I don't I don't think he believes yeah. it. I think he's... Uh-huh. I think it's just pure evil. Well, you know, again, we have to get into the mind and heart of these uh, these Hitlers. Uh, I... <laughs> I've been trying to figure out Hitler for a long time. I love some of the Hitler jokes. I won't even tell the Hitler joke because we're trying to talk uh, uh, seriously about matters. I mean, I was about to say that, of course, the hatred of capitalism is clearly motivating a lot of people because they associate global warming with capitalism. Of course, it's kind of stupid because then the rest of us point out that the Soviet Union, although socialist countries seem to pollute even worse, you know, so that, uh, you know, socialism isn't really the solution, but uh, but that won't stop them. They just, you know, they just feel, oh, the capitalists are screwing up the earth and and uh, and uh, that motivates them. But you want to talk about Larry Fink and now you're asking a precise question, which is that do the, do the oil and gas companies see that is a way for them to make more in the way of profits by doing this. Fink is Fink is supposedly put. I, 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 there was a Wall Street Journal article about Fink just this morning that came out. Uh, Lawrence Fink of Blackwater. He put something like three people on the board uh, uh, at Exxon Mobil. So now that's how they're being influenced. And so you're saying that 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 these three people on the board are saying, "Hey, look, this is a good way to make some profits." And, uh, and so you're saying they don't care about the uh, the 4.3 million people who are dying every year because they, they can't. Uh, no, yeah. I don't think I don't think they care one bit. And if anything, yeah. it's they've got alternative investments. BlackRock does that yeah. if they lose money on their Exxon Mobil, it's because they're going to make so much money on windmills or whatever the hell else they've done in that gas. And I, I mean, yeah. I can't I can't fully understand the inner. I'm, I'm not that well researched on their investments. I can just see yeah. the bigger picture of uh yeah. Uh, kind of owning government and pushing for regulation that will make you profitable. Rob Bernstein wants to ask, wants an answer to every pertinent question that comes up. He wants to know what is the in the what is motivating these people? Are they evil? Or are they stupid? Are they evil and stupid? That's what Rob wants to know. And this is where I come up empty a little bit with. Rob. So here, I'll give you, I'll give you a question with an easy answer. <laughs> Which is, I like you think uh, nuclear is going to be a great tool oh. for mankind, and yeah, I yeah. think we're going to see more usage in the near future. Uh, how do I get in on this? I've invested in oh. some URA. <laughs> I've invested in uh, in uh, which, and this one's more wildly yeah. speculative. But I've invested in uh, Rolls Royce because uh, I think that this small nuclear reactors is kind of the wave of the future. But it seems like a lot of it is uh, private at the moment. So I'm curious if you've got oh, well. the inside scoop on uh, how we can make some money off a of nuclear. Okay, just a moment, Rob. I, I mean, I, this, 
the, there's the, the there's the, the big solution to, to, to nuclear, and I'm, I'm I, the word lithium sticks in my mind. The 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 the, uh, the source for uh, nuclear that it's not yet state of the art, uh, but I do want to say, Rob, that uh, that given uh, that given the, the 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 political problems with nuclear, I'm a little bit skeptical that. It's really the investment of choice right now. I could be wrong uh, because there's so many, so many regulatory burdens imposed on it. Uh, and when I mention nuclear, it's only that um, I take the long vision. Uh, I uh, and the long vision uh, of centuries ahead is that well, fossil fuels may run out in 200 years, 300 years, 400 years. It's really probably going to take that long. Uh, for them to run out because uh, because the, 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 there's still so much more to be tapped. I was just impressed by by the numbers recently that we we've, we've tapped maybe a small percentage of of of, of other fossil fuels. That and we the get earth. more efficient in in the usage. More efficient in the usage, but of course, obviously, there's more. Hopefully, the world will use fossil fuels more. Hopefully, the poor people of the world will be using fossil fuels to the extent that uh, that that the rich people of the world uh, use it. So that's going to accelerate. But uh, but. But uh, but what I'm uh, what I'm interested in is uh, what would be the what would replace fossil fuels 200 years from now and indeed nuclear will nuclear uh, is uh, there's a vast amount of of, uh, of fuel for nuclear energy it's almost inexhaustible and what is state of the art right now is that nuclear can basically run everything it can run battery powered cars it could be you know the basis for the battery powered automobiles. Uh, I mean, you know, and uh, and in addition, it can run ships. The, the ships are, new, are, are run by nuclear. But the only thing at this point that we don't know how to run on nuclear is uh, is, is airplanes. Uh, the uh, you know that we, we, the, the batteries are too heavy to run. Uh, you know, a large you know, Boeing seven hundred seven. So uh, there would be just a place for fossil fuels with respect to flying. But all the other uh, ways in which we use energy, which are overwhelmingly um, most of the ways, you know, heating, travel, uh, lighting, all the rest of it can be nuclear based. And so that's the ultimate solution. But I, I, I believe um, here I bring uh, uh, the next part of my optimism to play. Uh, I believe that that the punishment that people are suffering now in Europe will be suffering in Europe uh, in the next few months because of the uh, cold winters. The people who are going to die, the people who are complaining uh, that there's already a, a certain uh, backlash. I, I gather now, I'm, uh, I read this recently, now I'm a little vague on it, that there's a new, the, the European Union has now declared that maybe gas is a is the kind of energy they want to use. They're beginning to be horrified by the consequences of their own actions. Didn't, what was, because uh, they specifically did some sort of a reduction in natural gas usage that has really yeah. screwed them over, but I don't know the specifics on it. Well, uh, I, I'm I'm not sure on the specifics either. Uh, I certainly uh, the Biden administration has made a huge difference, cutting back on, on on the development of pipelines that could make the delivery of natural gas and oil cheaper. Uh, I'm I don't I don't know the specifics either of what Europe has been doing, but certainly they've been shooting themselves in the foot. They're more beholden to the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet Union, <laughs> the former Soviet Union. Uh, that that dates me, Rob. For most of my life, it was called the Soviet Union, as you probably know. The former Soviet Union. 
otherwise known as Russia. You know, they've been they're selling natural gas to the Europeans. Uh, and I think that that again, the Wall Street Journal is pointing out that now we're increasingly dependent on OPEC. You had you had the great joke that Biden was saying we got to cut back on the use of oil, but please OPEC, please increase the uh, the amount of oil in the world. You know, at the same time you were saying let's be free of nat- uh, of oil, let's be free of fossil fuels, but not yet because we need we need more fossil fuels from the uh, from OPEC. So he's pleading with the Saudis to give us more oil when, when he's cutting back on oil on, on on the use of oil in our own country. So all of those silly contradictions and the and the and the rising price of gasoline at the pump is beginning to hurt. They don't give a damn about those 4.3 million people who are dying every year because they don't have the, uh, uh, the access to fossil fuels, but they certainly care about their own electorate, both in Europe and in the U.S. And so that's the reason why I'm optimistic that they're being that they're already realizing they've got to begin to back off, <clears throat> use all the bullshit at their command to back off about about how uh, the, uh, the how the use of fossil fuels is a threat to humanity. So I think the Biden administration is beginning to get that message. I think the uh, the the German government is is beginning to get that message as well. So that's why I think there will be a certain ascendancy for fossil fuels, and why I think that the oil companies, Exxon Mobil, and the rest of them will be asked to produce more oil, uh, more uh, more oil and more gasoline in the future. So I think that's probably the future over the next 10 years, Rob. Uh, nuclear, probably it's a decent investment. I guess it will come back to some some extent. But I, I mentioned nuclear only for the long haul. But but again, Rob, you shouldn't listen to me for investment advice. And I'm not, I'm not completely clear where to put the Rob Bernstein fortune, the Rob Bernstein thousands, uh, uh, where you should allocate your portfolio precisely, <laughs> Rob. Uh, but uh, but uh, so you should call your broker for that. But Excellent. Uh, Let's take a little bit of a break here from all these fine insights from uh, Gene Epstein to plug sponsors because Gene, he brings big numbers to this podcast, which means it's a great opportunity to educate people that aren't yet aware of Yocratum and Yodelta about all the drugs that they could be taking. Now, this is for people over the age of 21. Uh, It's endorsed by me and not by Gene. But if you go to Yocratum.com because you're into the Kratom thing, you can get a whole kilo for $60. And if you're more of a marijuana person, well, then Yodelta, they can ship you stuff that will get you high right to your door. Use promo code RYM. You're going to get 25% off or 20% off at Yodelta. Who cares about how much it's off? It's going to get you high either way, whether or not you're saving 20%. And then Yocratum, there, there's no discounts because it's already it's already the best price. You, you could travel. You'd have to fly to Indonesia yourself to try and get Kratom at these prices. And uh, we're all for savings. All right, let's get back. Back into the episode. Thank you to Yo Kratom and Yo Delta for sponsoring. All right, so uh, Gene, I I, I want to talk the book, um, but oh, the book. so well, yeah, yeah. Th- th- it's up to you. We're an hour in. If you want to reschedule, do an episode just on the book. We can. I'm comfortable though, and I got no commitment, so I, I'm I'm well, happy well, to well, dig in now. If you are, well, this what the, my so-called book is a is a massive uh, enterprise, and so uh, we I could certainly do uh, do the overview of of, uh, of, of my so-called book. And which doesn't even have a title. Uh, and uh, let me just get into. Why not uh, proving uh, the socialists wrong? Proving the socialists wrong. Yeah. Well, that. Well, the reason why. Um, the reason why I regard uh, this part of the interview as vital for all progressives and for all libertarians is that uh, I think that that the uh, that while many people offer advice about. Uh, vice libertarians and free marketeers, how do you talk to progressives? Uh, I, I say that the way to talk to progressives is the way I'm about to talk to them uh, uh, in, in the hour that remains to us. Uh, 
And uh, I, I think that uh, when uh, that the best answer I give when people ask me, why are you a libertarian? I answer, because I care about poor people. That's why I'm a libertarian. That's my f first and main answer. I give them a consequentialist response. Uh, and, uh, and people who say, well, because I care about freedom, uh, that when you say that to a progressive, what they really think is, oh, it's freedom from the elite, for the elites, for all you smart people, freedom. Yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're entitled to your freedom, but what about the ways in which uh, the capitalist system shafts uh, people who aren't as smart as you? Shafts the, the the broad masses of people, uh, and uh, so you're not too sensitive to that, are you? And on top of that, uh, the the Ayn Randians don't do us any good by preaching the virtue of selfishness. Although I personally do observe that ever since I debated Yaron Brook on the subject at the Soul Forum, uh, he defended the resolution selfishness is a virtue. He's taken to use the term self-interest rather than selfish, and of course I have no problem with the word self-interest. Uh, uh, Adam Smith had no problem with the word self-interest. Adam Smith disapproved of selfishness, and we all should disapprove of selfishness. But I mention that only because the Ayn Randians have given us a bad name because they, uh, they, they, they are implying that we don't care about the broad masses of people. We just want freedom. And uh, for, for, us, uh, for, for us privileged types, we don't care about the ways in which people uh, have to worry about putting a roof over their head and putting food on the table. And so uh, that's the reason why I think this is important for libertarians to understand. I love that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, no, because I, I, I end up on the back foot sometimes because I yeah. mean, my starting point was definitely understanding that I thought that this was a better system for everybody yeah. and that it does uplift the poor. Yeah. But I, it, I think you're right. When you start with the freedom, yeah. it's it, the reason you love freedom is because of that conclusion, or at least for me, that's what I love about freedom is that it yeah. would help everybody. So I think you're right. The better starting point is, uh, wait, how did the way you phrased it? Because you want to help the poor? Yeah, well, yeah, because I care about because I care about uh, lifting the living standards of the poor people of the world, of of, of the masses of people, of the masses of people who who, uh, who don't have uh, the high IQs and don't have the enormous talents and skills, the the the, the average Joe. Because uh, we stand the, for the little man, for the little guy, for the little, which is why I'm going to play your apartment. <laughs> for, the, for the little woman, I stand for the little the little guy, the little man, and the little woman. all of those people, uh, and. Uh, uh, I, I believe that that gives them the best chance in life uh, to improve their lot in life uh, and uh, to live according to the way they want to live because, of course, freedom becomes a part of it as well. That's, that's when I have a long-winded answer. But again, my, my, my short answer is, because, uh, my long-winded answer as well, is that I was raised in the left-wing tradition. Uh, my, father, my father was a capitalist, but he's more of an FDR liberal. My mother affected me the most. <clears throat> she was, as I famously said, mommy was a commie. She was a, a card-counting communist, and and I and I uh, I came up from intellectual depravity. I I, I was a socialist in my twenties, and and so I came from that bleeding heart tradition. Uh, I am a bleeding heart capitalist. That's another way I have of putting it. And and so to set the stage uh, for this analysis. Uh, though I, so again, getting back to my book and all the rest of it, I would like to make my contribution, my own contribution to that cause through this book, 
uh, at least a book-length treatment of all of the aspects of bleeding heart capitalism. Uh, I mean, maybe the subtitle is why progressives should be libertarians. Why why anybody who cares about the plight of poor people should be a libertarian, uh, should be pro-free market at the very least. Uh, and, uh, and so I want to leave that message uh, to uh, many of my relatives, by the way, because you know some of my close relatives are still progressives, uh, uh, still left-wing oriented, uh, and still believe that unless you have massive government intervention, uh, then poor people are going to get shafted. Uh, and uh, I, I want to begin with the framework. You know, just take up uh, probably not uh, not all of the book because the, the book is going to go into many aspects of the issue, which I, which I think uh, another episode of uh, of running running your mouth would be good. But I want to now set the stage, picking up on a great formulation from the economist George Reisman. Uh, and uh, Reisman had a nice rhyme, uh, and I originally heard this in a lecture he delivered before a bunch of progressives. He said that 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 really, if uh, if uh, I would ask you people, why are people earning more than they used to? Why do why do people earn more than they did a century ago, or more than they more than more than uh, they they did fifty years ago? You'll all tell me, well, it's because of the government, because of government intervention, because capitalists are in the saddle, the employer is in the saddle. And, and what is the logic of your position as to why employers are in the saddle? It, it reduces to a nice rhyme that, that, uh, that uh, Reisman thought of. Worker need and employer greed. The workers need a job and the employers are greedy enough to pay them as little as possible. Now, uh, he asserts that worker need and employer greed basically have a lot of truth in them, but they don't explain why wages rise. And it's simple enough to understand that despite worker need and despite employer greed, wages are going to rise in a growing economy. Of course, I stipulate the growing economy and the growing economy is important to, to point out because the, 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 the uh, large fortunes are generally made, 90%, 95% are made by selling great goods and services to the broad masses of people. That's where the real money lies. That's how Saul, Sam Walton became a millionaire, and that's how Jeff Bezos became a millionaire. You don't, you don't become, you, a few people can become quite rich by selling only to the rich, but basically you want to sell, that's how Henry Ford became a, a billionaire, that's, and Rockefeller, that's how you do it. And th those goods and services are bestowed on the broad masses of people, and but then they hold their own with respect to salaries. So let's get to work and need and employer greed and, and work through why those two facts still. And, then, and, 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 and what you're saying is that you have to, you, you have to create something of value and it's got to be a value to the poor of the world or the middle class of the world in order to become wealthy. So you're being rewarded for doing something that's of benefit, not just to rich people. Well, because because the facts are that because the because because of the way uh, uh, the the way uh, uh, wages are distributed, uh, I should I should then bring in the, the statistics I've used against socialists, which is that uh, that uh, what that eighty percent of all consumer spending in the U.S. is is accounted for by the lower ninety percent, uh, uh, one third of it is counted by the lower half. 
So, so the so the lower ninety percent are really you know we workers, we proletarians. The the other ten percent, let's say, are the employers and the capitalists. Even though ten percent, that means we got a lot of voting dollar power. Like when you dollars. when you and when you and I argue that like let people kind of vote with their dollars as a, as opposed to kind of government policies, people yeah, can yeah. pick what they want and go vote with their dollars. Yeah. So the poor of the world, or not the rich controls 90% of consumer spending. So they, they should have a very, they should actually have an outsized voice in a world where you get to vote with your dollar. Right. No, I mean, it's a great thing. 90%, 90% account for 80%. They, they account for 80% of all consumer, the 90%. So obviously that means that those goddamn 10%, uh, they have 20%. You know, so that's, that's you know, we, we hate that. We, we egalitarians, I don't, personally mind that the 10% account for 20% and the 90% account for 80%. But the point is that while you can make uh, make a fair amount of money, like Bloomberg, you can make a fair amount of money by selling things to that, that top 10%. Uh, the real money the reason why Bezos is the richest man in the world is because he thought of the, he thought of everybody. The bottom the bottom ninety uh, percent that account for eighty percent of all, all consumer spending. Because because uh, Steve Jobs was selling those smartphones to Maasai warriors. Because even poor people the poor people of the, of the country own smartphones. That's where the real money is. Uh, but so that's that's why uh, why uh, the income of the broad masses of people rise uh, rises over time because the Rockefellers and the Fords and the Sam Waltons and the Bezos of this world understand that you've got to create value for them if you really uh, want to become a tycoon in this world. But I want to get to work and need and employer greed because, because the work and need and employer greed are the compelling arguments that, that the progressives will use even though it doesn't quite occur to them to, to talk precisely in their way. But this is an argument that appeals to them. Workers need a job. Most workers need to work in order to live and must find work quickly because their savings can't sustain them for very long. Uh, so that's valid. Uh, that's been valid as a practical matter for most people. Let's grant it. Well, we can we can argue with it a little bit. We can modify it a little bit. Uh, but uh, it's mostly true. You do need a job most of the time. You can't last that much longer without a job uh, uh, if you uh, if you don't have a job uh, in uh, cap in a free market society. And then self interest, employer greed, just like. We consumers want to pay as little as possible for what we buy. Uh, we love bargains. There's employer greed. Uh, nobody is saying that employers uh, are, are, are not greedy in the sense that they want to maximize their profits and they would like to be able to pay you as little as possible. And therefore, if we, if we put work and need and employer greed together, then don't we find, as progressives will conclude, that uh, that uh, workers are only going to get paid subsistence. You know why would they get paid subsistence? And that's the Marxian argument. They get paid subsistence because if they won't even pay you enough to keep life and uh, and uh, and body together, then you'd rather just die under a tree than actually go to work. So clearly, they've got to pay you subsistence in order to keep you alive. And that's that was the Karl Marx's argument. I went to graduate school. We were arguing, we were studying Marx, and we said, "Well, the capitalists are in the saddle, and uh, and the and the capitalists pay people just subsistence. And why should they pay any more? Because workers need a job, and the and the employers are greedy. And so that's the logic of the argument, and it would seem to be compelling." Uh, now, what's wrong with that argument is best illustrated by an, by uh, by a hypothetical that 
that um, that Riesman throws out. Uh, he thought of, thought of the, thought of this one. Uh, let's say you're moving to uh, New York City uh, from an area where you needed a car. That's you know in the uh, you lived in a rural area and you needed a car, but you're gonna live in the middle of Manhattan and it's too expensive to maintain a car in Manhattan. You don't have the money to do so. Can't garage it. So you need to get rid of the car because you're moving to Manhattan. So you have a need. You have a need to get rid of that car because otherwise it could bankrupt you because you know you you're, uh, you you you'd give it away. Uh, you, get somebody to take it off your hands because it's now a liability to because you're moving to New York City. Uh, and, uh, and, and so you have a need to get rid of a car. You're at the mercy of those people uh, who want to buy a car. And now there's consumer greed. The, 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 the people who will buy a car from you are greedy on the other side. They want to pay as little as possible for that car. Now, do you have to give away, give the car away? Do you, uh, no, you don't, no. Do you it's have example. to, yeah, yeah, it's a good example because, because clearly, no, you'll find that there's a whole range of competitive bids for the kind of car you want to sell to people. Similarly, similarly, in the case of employment, in the case of employment, uh, because uh, labor is a non is is a non-specific good, non-specific being that labor is adaptable to a lot of different things. And by the way, an interesting angle that I like about labor being a non-specific good. You know, we could all work at McDonald's. We we could all we could all uh, pump gas at a filling station. There's so many different things that we can do. But here's the interesting part of it, which is that the more you enhance your skills. The more specific, the more narrow the number of employers you could possibly choose from. You know, if you only want to be an economic journalist, which is what I was in the business of doing, then then uh, then there are only a, a relatively limited number of people I could work for. Uh, but but if you want to generalize your skills, then there are hundreds of potential employers who are bidding for your labor. And so obviously, just as you don't have to give the car away or sell it for 10 bucks simply because you have the need to get rid of it and simply because the consumers are greedy. You don't have to uh, work for subsistence because you have employers out there. Now, what is really motivating the employers to bid for your, for your services? What's motivating them is their evaluation of the degree of profit they can make from your labor. Uh, and so we, in, 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 a, in an advanced and progressing economy, they, I, I, by the way, I don't even, I, I, a, lot of, a lot of the textbooks use the word productivity. And while productivity is not an irrelevant concept, I would prefer to just talk about the, their greediness, the, 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 issue, the issue of profit, which is that they evaluate, that they, they have certain jobs that they need to fill in order to earn a profit in the businesses that they pursue. And uh, that they're profit oriented. And then uh, they, they interview you, they evaluate you, they look at your background, and they, they come to a judgment implicit or explicit as to how much they can make by employing you. Are you okay? You're, uh, you're, I think my camera might've just froze. Can you hear me though? I can hear you, so it doesn't really matter. But I don't just don't like the way you look, Rod. <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter. I'll just look at myself. No, and no, give, give it a second. We'll come back. 
Okay, but well, you can you can keep talking while I, mean, I can uh, keep blabbing away, Rob. Well, I'm going to keep blabbing away at you. Um, the point, I, I I just appreciate the way you're responding to the way I'm talking, Rob. But <laughs> that and uh, now you look blase. You look like you're about to fall asleep in a in, in a frozen moment. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I will continue, Rob. Uh, the, the they they are looking to evaluate uh, the value uh, that you can create for them uh, and whether they can earn a surplus from your work. But but the, but the point is that if, if they all have, let's say, and, and these numbers are actually reasonably realistic, they, they all say, they might all think that, uh, that they want to pay you uh, 80 cents on the dollar of revenue. In other words, for every 80 cents that they, that they uh, pay you, they want to make a dollar of revenue. And so they have to ask themselves, will they be able to make 80 cents uh, on the dollar by employing you and then sell uh, the product of your labor, be it your contribution to the goods that they sell or the or the services that they sell, uh, uh, w will they be able to sell it for, uh, for a dollar? And then if they can employ you in that way, uh, they will do so. They'll offer you that job. But, uh, but now let's say that uh, that some employer is paying you just 60 cents on the dollar rather than 80 cents on the dollar. Well, other employers will come in and bid up your wage. They will see the potential to earn that, 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 that 20 cents of margin and bid up your wage. So that therefore there will be in a competitive marketplace uh, a certain uh, 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 pressure to bid up the wage to the extent that you shop around. Getting back to the car that you're going to sell, you're going to look at all the competitive bids for your car. Similarly, you're going to look at all the competitive bids for your labor, and you're going to go to the best job offered. Working conditions also apply. The 80 cents, by the way, of, of, of salary also has to do with the cost of employing you. And in a progressive economy, then that 20% margin is going to mean that, uh, that you're going to get richer and richer because goods and services are going to be sold to you at that higher wage. Uh, Rob, you want to step in because it's a little disconcerting to see that, that, that image of you having gone frozen. Are you still there? I'm still here. I'm I'm listening intently, and I'm hoping that the camera will come back shortly. Well, that's okay. Okay, but I don't know. I don't know if I made my arithmetic clear to you. What I'm, what I'm basically saying is that is that the profit margin is the issue, and if uh, if if the if the way if the if there are wage if you are asking for a wage of eighty five cents. And and most employers want to get that twenty that that, that twenty cents of, of margin out of you, then you won't get employed. You have to go down to eighty cents. But but if but if some employers are under underbidding for your work, if if they are if they are underpaying you, then you'll go. You'll migrate to to uh, to, to in the competitive marketplace to somebody who will pay better. You're saying you kind of. You kind of command the value that you represent. If you're making your firm a substantial amount of money yeah. uh, and you have the knowledge of the fact that you're able to do that and there yeah. aren't as there aren't a substantial amount of people that could easily replicate what you're doing, yeah. then you could easily go to another employer and demand more money because you make the employer money. Yes, that's right. And the employer, the employer will will bid will bid your services away. Uh, and if, and if, if you've got a very simple skill, yeah. and so the firm actually is creating more of the value that they're able to take. Let's just say you using a hammer and nail or something very simple, like you're able to stand in one spot all day 
and press a button and the firm knows how to make you profitable by standing there and pressing a button, well, then they command a little bit more of the value there. You're not going to be paid as well. And because where are you going to go press a button and get paid, you know, 15 bucks an hour to do so? Maybe another firm that knows how to organize people standing there to press a button. Yes. Okay. Well, right. You're talking about pressing a button, flipping a burger. Probably the button can be pressed by a machine. But uh, but but uh, but but uh, we we do know that uh, that that uh, that the that in the U.S. economy empirically, more and more people are employed all the time. So there are always jobs for people. And but but you're focusing that. No, there's a there's an idea. I think I just read this yesterday in yeah. uh, Riesman's book. I'm I'm reading his big book and. Uh, oh, that book. Yeah. I like I like this idea a lot. I just thought it was so so interesting. Is that um, you like under a capitalist system, skilled laborers don't compete with unskilled laborers. So if you're a person and you're really smart, and so you decide, hey, I don't want to go work at McDonald's or I don't want to be a mechanic. I'm going to become an e economist. Well, that yeah. also benefits the guy who wants to go work at McDonald's because now you don't have to go compete with the economist guy for mm. that job. Because in a world where, you know, the economist guy is not going to make any more money, he might go, hey, why am I going to go to school? Why am I going to learn this stuff? I'll just go flip the burgers. So now mm -hmm. the other burger flipper is going to also make even less money because or I guess in the socialist system, there's not less money. But they now have to compete, you know, with people that would have done other roles to even, I guess, find a job flipping burgers. Yes, exactly. And and the, and the burger, the, the, the burger flipper, uh, if if uh, if he can produce uh Twelve dollars an hour of value, uh, and but but if the minimum wage is at fifteen dollars, then he's not going to get a job. Uh, but uh, but but uh, but what also happens is that if there are a lot of people who can be employed at a low wage, then there will be entrepreneurs who will in if will actually come in and employ them and see a way to earn a profit from their labor. Uh, the only point uh, I guess I need, we need to emphasize now is that the worker need employer greed part of it, just as it doesn't uh, say that you've got to give away that car when you move to the city. It's that, uh, it's that when you move to any area where there are um, a number of different employers who could employ your labor, and this is, again, applies especially to the unskilled and to the semi-skilled, because that's where most of the jobs are and where most of the employers are, then you can shop around and find an employer who can employ you at a wage that will be profitable to the employer. The employer will offer you a wage that's profitable to him and you will go to the employer who pays you more because, and that employer will pay you more if somebody is under, underpaying you. Uh, you will also learn on the job. There's another factor to that. The, the employer has to bear in mind that he might, that he might lose you after a year. There's all kinds of calculations. Isn't, isn't just the current market <laughs> absolute proof against, uh, the original, I, I think the original idea that you said was that in a, in a pure market society, according yeah. to Marx, yeah. uh, you will only get paid what you need to survive because the it's worker, just, the, the owners are greedy. Yeah, yeah. But we have a current system where most people, at least in free markets like the United States of America, are not just being paid. You know, the, like you got plenty of people who are making a lot more than just the minimum. So isn't that just absolute proof that the idea is false? Oh yes, well, well, no, just a moment, just a moment. Okay, now you're bringing up the empirical point, which is important to bear in mind. Uh, 
uh, if you if you ask for a show of hands uh, uh, among progressives and, and you ask them why are wages higher, well, they would say, well, uh, unions have helped, labor unions have helped, the minimum wage laws have helped, uh, there are other uh, legal interventions, uh, and probably, very possibly, capitalists are nicer now than they used to be. They used to be absolute bastards in uh, in the 90s. Uh, so they're saying in a perfect world, we're not looking at a perfect world model because if there wasn't government intervention on behalf of workers, then you would have ended up in an environment where workers are not paid any more than what they absolutely need to survive. Yes. Now, I got interesting. Now, the key empirical answer to that is to take the period uh, from 1870 to about uh, 1925, you know, 1928, 29, before the Great Depression happened. But it's about 1870. It's a, nearly a 60-year period in, in the U.S. history. Uh, and why do I take that particular period? First of all, because we have a good, uh, reasonably good data on wages, on living standards. And we also know about that period prior to the advent of the New Deal, that 60-year period, that while there was government intervention of different kinds in the labor market over that 60-year period starting in 1870, we know that there was virtually no government intervention in the labor markets. There was no minimum wage. Uh, unions were a relatively tiny percentage of the labor force. They didn't become important until New Deal legislation gave them legal rights that enabled unionization to take off. And, and isn't they, isn't the period you're describing one of the greatest wealth expansions ever? Exactly. Exactly. And we, we, we don't even have. And, and then the point I make to progressives is, would you please account for how this occurred over the 60 year period in the U.S.? There were no protections for labor in the U.S. And on top of everything else, through most of that period, we had massive immigration into the country. Uh, uh, my ancestors, uh, the Irish, others, pursuing uh, uh, unskilled work, millions of immigrants begging for work and flooding into the country and hurting the wage, uh, you know, bidding down the wage because of the huge uh, extra supply of laborers. And yet, and yet, we don't even have to belabor the, the labor side of it and look at wages, even though there is data on that. All we have to do is look at living standards by the broad masses of people by the 1920s uh, versus the, the 1870s and recognize this could only have come about because real wages were higher, because there was no, because there were no, there was no welfare then either. Nothing happened. It was it was the bad old days of capitalism, and and that's when arguably the, the working classes, the broad masses of people, improved their lot in life even more rapidly. And of course, the confusion that enters into the mind of many progressives is that obviously living standards were much lower in the 1920s, much lower in 1910. But but hopefully we can focus them on the progress that was made, on, on the fact that people were better fed, electricity uh, uh, was introduced in, in in terms of living standards, people were able to drive cars. Uh, uh, in, in the twenties, the average person could afford a Model T uh, car. Not 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 the poor people, but certainly uh, working class, middle class people could afford cars. C could live much better in almost every conceivable way. 
only because uh, their wages must have been higher in real terms. And, and then the interesting part of it is that the nominal wage was not necessarily higher in real terms. The real wage was. And of course, in a progressing economy, for the most part, uh, what we would actually have is stable wages in nominal terms. But then we get the Henry Fords and the Rockefellers to introduce uh, cheap fuel, cheap cars, cheap everything else that bestows on the broad masses of people a much higher living standard while their wage remains approximately stable. And so uh, that's the answer to the progressives. Look at that particular period of time and then explain to me how it all happened. The bad old days of American capitalism, when for some strange reason, even though the, the, the labor markets were being flooded by every immigrants, everybody raised their living standards. And even though unions were, uh, were, were, were a tiny percentage of the, of, the, of the labor force. So that's hopefully the ultimate empirical point to make to the progressives about how free market capitalism actually does work in terms of lifting the living, living standards of the broad masses of people. Are you still there, Rob? I'm still here. And uh, sadly, you know, this is why I need a full-time producer to sit no. here because uh, when the tech issues come, I don't know what the hell to do. Okay. Well, but I'm still uh, here. I'm listening. I guess we can still talk. Uh, uh, we're sort of a half hour in. I, I wanted I wanted to introduce that general point. Uh, I uh, I guess we can then deal with all the other aspects in which government makes matters worse rather than better. Uh, but I don't know if I don't know if we sufficiently set the stage uh, for the point that that the exploitation theory is not valid. I guess I could bring in um, another aspect of it that Riesman likes to point out, which is that that employer greed, uh, to put a finer point on the issue, actually means that they bid up the wage, that, that in order to get a sufficient num uh, number of people to work for him, uh, Henry Ford advertised the $5 day at that point. He wanted or, people- Or if you want a specific worker. So in other words, yeah, right. So the the greed itself might actually get you to pay more because you want specific people or you want more of them. Yes, uh, and uh, but then uh, but then I, I like to mention the Henry Ford point because this was this was sort of ordinary uh, labor. He wanted he wanted people to move to Detroit. He needed thousands of workers, and he and he advertised advertised a huge increase in the in in uh, in wages because he needed the people to come. He he needed to attract workers to his massive factories and uh, and so and and that's because he he felt because of what he had developed in terms of mass production he knew that if he could employ people at the five dollars a day he could make a profit from their labor uh, and and profits then are what motivate uh, the uh, the employers to bid up their wage uh, bid up the wage of of, of, of people of limited skills uh, and, uh, and and profits are uh, are what motivate entrepreneurs to sell goods and services to the broad masses of people that make them prosperous and uh, and and so hopefully that's that's the basic argument why the dynamics of free market capitalism will benefit will principally benefit the broad masses of people I guess the other part of it to point out is that in terms of, of equality, in terms of equality, if you really look at uh, not so much the actual dollar numbers, but if you look at what 
Bill Gates, what the very rich consume and what the broad masses of people consume uh, in this uh, U.S. economy, then you find that probably inequality is narrowed because, again, because so, so many of the things, of course, to cast ourselves centuries back, so many of the things that rich people had, uh, the rich people uh, of the world had, the poor people didn't have. But now, you know, the broad masses of people can afford air conditioning and they can afford cars, they can afford smartphones. As it's pointed out, the Maasai warrior owns a smart, same smartphone that Bill Gates has. And, and uh, so there's not a whole lot to envy in the way the, the, the rich people live in terms of the way the rest of us live. I mean, maybe, you know, ultimately about the only thing to, uh, to envy about those rich people is that they've got their own private jets. But, but that's a government problem. The reason why we've got to stand on line at those goddamn airports is because of the, the crazy government rules. And that's why flying is such an inconvenience and why the rich people can just get in their private planes and fly around. But uh, but actually, in terms of goods and services, uh, well, that's uh, such a good point that flying yeah. probably would not be that big of a deal if it yeah. wasn't for like, I don't even know what other licensing laws exist that like you end up just on like. The tarmac, like everything that's annoying about it, you're 100 percent right. Yeah. That if it was just a free market, you could probably just show up to an airport, walk onto a plane, have a cocktail, not be crammed in, and just be fine. Exactly, and that, but and, and as I say, that then the only thing I find that I, I that I that I envy about the, the very rich is that they have their private planes, and and that too is a government problem. Uh, and uh, but otherwise, I there's there's nothing much. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do the Rob Bernstein thing. I'm gonna give the short on this because it's fascinating. Yes, the capitalism it's working because in order to make substantial money, in order to get really rich, you got to create something of value that's going to be a value for the common man, and yeah. then that also creates not only are you does that mean that you're giving them something, but then also the jobs that are created, right? all the jobs that are created it's not true that you can just pay people like the lowest possible wage for them to survive and the proof of that is that absent of government intervention when we have the greatest wealth expansion ever your wealthy people that were offering jobs were not doing that like people were wage wage wages did get bid up well, yeah, no, wait. Well, that's, are you, I'm sorry, you're talking about my period from like 1870, 1870 to about to about 1930, that's 60 years. Right. Period, which is and the then, best. and then on top, and then on top of all that, as uh, economies grow, technology gets better, and then good and goods and services actually become cheaper. So the standard of living of the poor actually increases. Because yeah, because all those goods and services, all the, the Henry Fords and the and the Johnny Rockefellers and the and the Andrew Carnegies, the, uh, those uh, those so-called robber barons can only make money by selling to the masses. And and then actually, in numerical terms, what really happened uh, happens is that is that nominal wages either remain stable or maybe even fall. But 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 the goods that are bestowed, but the real wage increases because the goods that are bestowed on them, that were bestowed on them during that 60 period, 60 year period, uh, increase exponentially. And again, I, I, I guess uh, where I guess uh, I want to put a fine point on things is to recognize that in a competitive marketplace where the where where uh, where capitalists are underpaying, so to speak, maybe they're making a thirty percent profit margin off people's labor. But if you can make a fortune through a twenty percent profit margin, then you can bid away uh, 
that, that, that labor, drive that guy into bankruptcy because nobody's going to work for him and you can make a profit. So that there's a natural uh, uh, motivation on the part of the greedy employer to bid up the wage in order to get the best people he possibly can to and work just, in order to take advantage of people who underpay in terms of the wage. Yeah, And that's kind of just a function of the opportunity cost. Opportunity? Uh, how do you mean? Uh, explain what do you mean? No, because in other words, like if if there's an industry where some guy has figured out how he can make a thirty percent profit margin yeah. on the labor, then some other guy will just look at it and go, "Oh, I can make more money doing that than what I'm doing." And then you're going to end up not you're going to end up having to hire people at lower profit margins. So, like there, there's no you know, there's no unless I don't know you got some technology that no one else has at the moment. You're not going to figure out some industry where you're not having to pay people the value of their labor. Well, the value of their labor in terms in terms of your of your evaluation of what it costs to employ those people and what uh, what you can sell your product for. But I I, I mean I know to, I, I, what you've alluded to, Rob. I, I want to mention you seem to talk about somebody who's invented who maybe have some kind of special niche special thing that he sells in order to get in order to get people to work for him to produce that item or to produce that service, he's got a bit away labor from all the other employers. Yeah. No, I'm That's saying like, let's say, let's say you're Ford. You're the first guy who invents the car, right? Well, you're the first, you're, well that's a hypothetical. Probably wasn't. Well, let's just, let's just say, in. so, or yeah. you, you invent, uh, yeah, let's just say, well, let's keep that. Let's keep it simple. He invents the car. No one else has a car. Every other factory is uh, is paying five bucks an hour for labor. And he goes, look, this is amazing. I got this invention here. I can pay everyone five bucks an hour on labor. And my finished product is something that no one else can offer. So I'm actually going to make, you know, $30 an hour profit off labor. It's unheard of. And yeah. someone's going to look at that and they're going to go start making cars. They're going to go, look, there's a more, a, another rich guy who can afford to build a, put in the capital to create a car factory would go, Oh, why am I building? Why do I have a factory over here making wrenches where I'm paying my labor five bucks an hour and my profit margin on them is only five bucks an hour. I'm going to go make a competing car factory. So that's what I'm saying that like, if you figured out an oper a way to uh, profit off of labor and that that like it doesn't exist in the marketplace. Someone's probably going to come in and compete with you, and they're going to drive down that profit margin. Drive down that profit margin, but but then but again, uh, you're, meaning that but then on the same note, meaning that like the wages will in in some way be returned to the labor. It's not like indefinitely you can figure out a way to suck value out of like you know what I mean. It's like if, if at some point if you figured out how to organize simple tasks in a way to create an extreme amount of profit someone's probably going to come in and compete and they're going to end up either hiring people that didn't have jobs, which is a win because now you got a new industry, or they're going to have to drive up the price of labor because they're going to have to pay people more to try and poach your workers. So well, right. uh, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Okay. You formulated well. I just want to build up, uh, build, uh, put a fine point on what you just said. You're basically saying, Rob, which is the other phenomenon of the free market is that entrepreneurs are constantly looking for temporary monopoly. They're constantly looking for something special, which will give them an unusual return of, of, of profit. And, uh, but, but, but those profits are eventually susceptible. They'll, they'll eventually get narrowed by other entrepreneurs who will realize that if they just copycat on what you've been doing, then they can, they can get rich to a 20% profit margin, whereas you had a 30%. And so there will be a tendency, uh, a strong tendency 
for entrepreneurial profits to eventually be melted away, even though while you're enjoying that entrepreneurial profit, you're going to get pretty rich. So, so that so that's the con a constant churn in the marketplace. I believe that's what you've said, Rob. And there's, so that will result in your bidding up the labor. But of course, what also happens, by the way, uh, just just to put a finer point on it, is that if you're if you're in a situation where uh, you're paying labor a certain amount and you're making a certain huge profit margin, you are going to be aware of uh, of the of the potential for entry, the potential for competition that, uh, that, right. that will move it. You you then become a moving target, and so you will probably reduce your price or raise your wage in order to become less vulnerable. Make it more expensive to compete with you, right? Yeah, make it Brilliant. more difficult. So so that so that so if you cut your price, then of course that that price that you cut benefits laborers because what because what they're buying from your company now is cheaper and that's often the, the way in which but it also cuts down the profit cuts down the profit but then of course it cuts down the profit but then the profit is hopefully sufficient for you anyway and of course the reason why you have to cut down your profit is because if you don't then you're going to track competition that could drive you to the wall so that so therefore uh, oddly enough it isn't even quite as simple as saying that that you establish a 30% profit and then somebody comes in and takes it away from you you may well uh, uh, guard yourself against that by maintaining a narrow enough profit margin to keep out the temptation on the part of others to compete with you. And but of the, course, the point, I, I think the short point is the free market kind of polices your ability yeah. to like, you know, I, I, let's just say wrongfully profit off the labor of others. It, well, at the end uh, of the day, it will get returned to laborers. There's yeah. no, there's no ability to just figure out a way to make some incredible profit off of laborers yeah. where like it, it's not indefinite. So you're either going to have to reduce the cost of your goods or you're going to be vulnerable to competition. So the, the, like the problem posed by the Marxist is, is self-policing it, it like the, the free market handles it. Yes. Well, you say, well, legal. see, actually might as well use the word exploitation that, that while, while uh, we, we, we want to go back on that point about exploitation, uh, there, there is no real exploitation, except if you want to put it, say, quote unquote exploitation, then just as you say, if you want to, if you want to quote, quote unquote exploit workers by making uh, a huge profit off their labor, you're going to be vulnerable to competition. Other people are going to bid up the labor. Other people will charge less for the product, and uh, and and uh, you will probably become aware uh, in the first instance of that competition, and so you won't even invite it. But if you do invite it, then that so-called quote unquote exploitation is not going to last for very long. Now, I, because you, you're going to be attracting competition. Going to cut back in for one more quick ad reads for sheathunderwear.com. It's a new year and it's time to start treating your junk right. Treat it like the special. You've got special nuts. You can't just let them drift in the wind. That's no way to be living your life. And I, I don't want to I don't want to waste too much time in this episode before we get back to these important economic insights. I don't want to spend too much time talking about undergarments and your nuts. I, I, that that would be rude to Gene, who's who, he, he doesn't even know I'm coming back into this thing and cutting an ad reads before we get to his next insight. So we're not going to dwell on this for too long. You go to sheathunderwear.com, you use promo code RYM, uh, you're going to get uh, maybe 20% off, something like that. It, you're going to save some money, but the more important thing is you're going to be treating your nuts right. That, that That's the important part. Forget forget about the amount off and start thinking about how precious your nuts are. And you, you don't want to be at a, you know, we're, I'm just, look, we're getting back into the show. Sheathunderwear.com, go check it out. I do have one question. So if you look yeah. at the uh, uh, like global labor, 
So at some point, it is somewhat a function of supply, right? I mean, everything's kind of a function of supply and demand, but if there's such an abundance of supply currently of uncapped, untapped labor, like let's say you go to China or you go to India or other locations, so then up, like obviously economies can expand to a point where, yes, companies do need to start bidding for labor and then everything that we're describing would take place. But on the bottom floor, Right. If you walk into an environment where there is an abundance of where there's, you know, people who are looking for jobs, they don't really have any leverage. So aren't you going to have some of the Marxist problem like, you know, at the at the origination? Like, in other words, as societies develop and become wealthier. So, yes, you will advance to a point where I think there is not enough labor for every job where people become more skilled. And so they're able to command better wages. But if you step into an environment, you know, that people don't currently have jobs and there's an abundance of labor. So you are going to, I mean, I wouldn't call it exploitation because these people otherwise wouldn't have jobs. And if they're free to work there, it might be their best option. But uh, I, I guess everything that we're saying kind of seems to exist in an advanced society, like in the U S because there isn't just an abundance of labor, but when there's just a total abundance of labor, wouldn't you have an, uh, like a degree of exploitation and not everything we're describing kind of kicking in? Well, okay, just a moment. Let me let me try to focus on the broad brushstroke of what you just said, Rob. I, I guess you're sort of mentioning, referring to the fact that an awful lot of cheap labor in China and cheap labor in uh, in the poor countries of the world has been employed to serve to, to 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 service the production of goods that are in turn being sold at Walmart. Is that what you're? More or less referring no, to- I'm saying if, if the concern is, hey, I can I can open up a factory and I can pay laborers virtually nothing more than what they need just to sustain themselves. Right. I guess that's the concern yeah. of the Marxists. Well, well OK, well, uh, all right. Uh, I guess the first thing to say about that is that it's not so much an advanced economy or a uh, or a uh, or a poor economy. It's just that in a malfunctioning economy, uh, there could be uh, what a lot of people who don't have jobs. Is that yes. what you're saying? I mean, yeah, I guess uh, if you're in an environment. All right, so that's interesting. Okay. So you're saying that the only way that there could be an environment where there's an abundance of people without jobs is that there's some sort of a problem within the within the economy. Yeah, and then you can't. And then in a poor economy, you can't just wish everybody to be richer by uh, hiking the minimum wage to twenty dollars an hour. You'll just render a lot of people unemployed i guess to some degree rob you're anticipating uh my long uh the, the long one of the longest part of parts of my book and the lectures which is that that on balance government makes matters much worse makes it much harder for the for, for the free market to function uh in terms of its what its real results of raising the living standards of the broad masses of people uh so saying the, the natural course of the free market is that it will raise the living standards. Yeah, but, but and good, yes. No, no, no. And that, uh, and so I guess part B is understanding. Well, part A is proving. Listen, the free market will raise living standards, because, and then, yeah, yes. because that's the natural course of the free market. Try to outline in broad brushstrokes why it happens and how it did happen empirically in the in from 1870 to 1930. Yes, going. And then part B is here's the unintended consequences of when you interrupt that, that you're yeah. actually getting in, in the way of the natural progression of uplifting people's wages and living standards. 
but but if you talk, but but I want to put but if you're going back to this point about how we if we have a situation in which a lot of people don't have jobs, then ho then hopefully Rob giving them a job even as subsistence is a good thing. And I thought I would I would uh, pounce and say, why do you think, uh, uh, as Ben Powell, who's written about the sweatshops of India, uh, has pointed out, the sweatshops of Bangladesh, why do you think people gravitate to that employment? Because uh, it's their best opportunity. Because it's the best opportunity available to them. Right. And, and of course, famously, Paul Krugman, who's basically polluted the, our intellectual atmosphere for many years, had his finest moment in the, in the, in the 1990s when he wrote an essay, uh, a short essay called you know, Sweatshop Jobs at, at Sweatshop Wages in Third World Countries are a lot better than no jobs at all. That, that is not an edifying sight. Obviously, it's sort of a throwback to, to the poverty of the, 18, of the 1870s when you and I could be appalled at the conditions of life, that, that the working conditions that uh, that people, including children, were subject to, but 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 then of course we 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 don't even bear in mind that it was a heck of a lot worse when they did subsistence farming in 1860 when when that that they were only they were dealt the hand that they had to deal with. Similarly, in these poor countries, uh, it's a heck of a lot better than to be a subsistence farmer uh, uh, to work for one of these multinational corporations that gives you a decent job. And when most of them are asked, do you want better working conditions or do you want a higher take home pay? Because you understand that the other point that Friedman, that Riesman makes rather, is that is that it's, it's the full cost of employing a worker that has to do with whether you'll employ that person. And uh, and and uh, so that th th that cost could be spent in terms of a, of a wage that the worker takes home with him in terms of, of the actual uh, dollars paid or whatever currency you're paying in versus, uh, you know, providing air conditioning uh, uh, on a hot day for that worker, which also costs in terms of employing that worker. And what and overwhelmingly, in those very poor countries, the the uh, the workers actually say, "I'd rather work long hours and and have the money spent uh, by giving me more take-home pay than spent on better working conditions. I'd rather sweat the day through and be able to take home more money for my family." So again, uh, uh, it doesn't help uh, to not offer those workers uh, pay. The the, the uh, what induces the multi the multinationals go there. They they have a reasonable profit margin, but really they, they make a higher rate of profit by going to third world countries than they make by employing people in this country. But 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 it's not overwhelming. It's not enriching them to the point where it's insanely large. They still have to compete for labor and uh, and they and they survive by charging very little for the goods that they that they sell and by and, and basically by the way it's a win-win situation uh, what's happened the the third world the, the workers in these poor countries in india and elsewhere in china as well and bangladesh benefit by earning a much higher wage than they possibly can in their home country and then uh, those goods are sort of basically sold to the working class people who, who frequent walmart that's the reason why, by the way, goods, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the price of goods uh, over the last uh, 10, 20 years has really been uh, relatively flat, even though it's recently increased because of uh, the inflationary pressures of the Federal Reserve. But I, know, I don't know if I've, I've dealt with that sufficiently. You're just talking about 
any situation in which you have a lot of unemployed people, and you're right to say that, so to speak, if there's an abundance on the supply side, then capitalists will take advantage of it. But but basically, that's, I would argue, just what the doctor ordered, so to speak, the economic doctor ordered. Because they'll step in and they create jobs. And so that's the starting point. Now we're initiating this process that will start lifting up people's standards of living. Yeah. But I mean, if you if you want to bring I mean, but but then, of course, we want to ask ourselves, why is it that you have in this country? Why do we have recessions? Why do we have surplus labor? Then we can begin to explain it, not through the workings of the marketplace, but through through the operation of capitalism. We can also, uh, again, point out the harm that the minimum wage laws do, uh, the harm that unions do. I think. Gene, why don't we do a part two on the consequences of government intervention, and then we can do a full hour uh, detailing, I guess, part B of the book, which is here's all the ways that government's getting in the way of the free market being able to uplift people. Well, thank you, Rob. Absolutely. Uh, And uh, yeah, we've gone on. uh, It's now been an hour and 50 minutes. And we covered, uh, dude, we covered global warming. We covered we covered a lot. This is this is dense. Yes, it was a. It, I, I was arguing, uh, Rob. I remember when I said this could be the most important episode for uh, uh, your viewers in the entire, uh, for all podcast listeners, uh, for the entire 2022. It's not because I'm that special, Rob. It's only that I've got a special message, which I'm, we, you and I stand on the shoulders of giants, of people like George Reisman, on on other free market. Uh, thinkers who who've given us these insights that you and I can impart to people that. To, to sew it up with respect to the message of, ble- of bleeding heart capitalism that really, really, in a way, ultimately, ultimately, uh, the reason to be uh, a libertarian and to be pro- pro-free market is because you care about the uh, lifting the living standards of the broad masses of people and freedom that the free market gives you also matters. But, uh, but otherwise, I think that we're leading with our chins when we speak about freedom because you immediately get this sort of like inchoate reaction that all you care about is elites. And, and, uh, and what we've articulated in terms of work and need and employer greed is that we've drawn out through the help of George Reisman this sort of inarticulate suspicion that the progressives have of, of the way the capitalist system works. They think the capitalists are the saddle. They don't realize that in a competitive marketplace, really, ultimately, the working people are in the saddle. All right, Gene, I absolutely love it. We will uh, have to get on an email. We'll schedule part two where we start getting into the consequences, but really appreciate the time, and uh, thank you. Sure. Bye-bye, Ron. All right. Later, Gene. Goodbye. Bye-bye.